now next week is our annual celebration and, and meeting, as we've talked about. And our service is going to have space for us to share our thanksgivings to God for the ways he's shown himself faithful to us in the past year. In fact, our whole prayers of the people will be shaped around opportunities for you to express your gratitude to God for the things that he has done. And I want to make a special ask to those of you who will be joining us um, on Zoom for this service. We really want you to participate. So this last week, we sent out a Google form, and we're going to do it again this week. And in that Google form, there's a space where you can express your thanksgivings to God. And those will be shared in the service, read aloud. There's also space, if you're a member at Church of the Lamb, for you to vote on our parish council nominees and on our budget. So, so I'm asking you, we really want you to participate. You know, everything is odd during this season. And there are small things like this that enable us to to continue to live as life one day will be again. So it is small, but it's important for us to remember that life isn't always going to be as strange as it is now, that, that there's a hope of things returning to some kind of normal, some version of us being together in each other's presence again. And so I hope that you'll participate with us all in this now, um, in, in those hopes of the future that's to come. Now, Last week, I said that I was committing an unforgivable uh, sin for a preacher in that I talked briefly about money during our church's budget time. I asked you to pray for me, and I don't know if you prayed. If you did pray, I'm not sure what you prayed, but something happened, and this week, I'm talking about tithing. So, I'm sorry. I don't know what happened. Now, if you're on Zoom, please don't shut it off yet. It's, it's going to be okay. Now, this is not a topic that I've ventured into before. I haven't, as your, as your pastor. And it's not that things are desperate now. It's not that the budget is that dire. That's not the reason I'm doing it. Here's the real reason I haven't talked about it before, and I am now. The real reason I haven't is I just wasn't comfortable enough before. When I started here at Lamb, to be vulnerable with you, I was 30. I'm not much older now, but a little bit. Now, you should find those original parish council members who hired me and have a talking to about that. But I remember a time when a family friend was visiting when I, I was younger. This was not a Christian, this man. And he was ranting. One of the reasons he was not a Christian is because every time he went into the church, they were asking him for money. And I, I remember, I was just very sensitive to this. I I'm, I'm aware of the reputations about preachers and churches talking about money all the time, and I'm aware of where the churches have done genuine wrong on these issues. I'm also sensitive to the fact that some of you might think that I'm talking directly to you. Um, just so you know, I'm not. If you feel that way, it might be that someone more important is trying to talk to you, <laughs> but I'm not. The real reason I'm dealing with the topic now is it's just time that I learned how to talk to you about this. Jesus talks about money much more than he talks about hell, at least as much or more than he talks about sex. Money is a key way into your heart. And so it's important for me as your pastor to know how to talk to you about this. And so what I hope is that this is me and you learning together. Now, 
several of you have told me that you enjoy a podcast called The Bible Project. And I've listened to it some, and I've really enjoyed it too. Here's what The Bible Project says is their mission. If you're not familiar with it, you can look this up online. Don't do it right now, but you can look it up later. Helping people experience the Bible as a unified story that leads to Jesus. Helping people experience the Bible as a unified story that leads to Jesus. I love that. The Bible is this large, complex, but unified book. Now we're going to get to some of what the New Testament says about tithing money But the New Testament is always informed by the Old Testament. It doesn't get its ideas randomly. And so Malachi 3 that Stephanie read for us is an example of the kinds of things that the Old Testament says about tithing. Now a couple of helpful pieces of information first. One, let's get this out of the way. Tithing is not a punishment on you from God. It wasn't for the people of the Old Testament. Uh, It's not for you today. It's never a punishment. Two, the word tithe comes from the word for tenth. That's what the word means. It means a tenth. It comes from an agricultural economy where those growing crops would give an agreed upon amount to their landowner. And we're going to talk more about that. But for context, that's what tithe means, a tenth. So two helpful things. It's not a punishment on you. And this is what it means. It means a tenth. Back to Malachi. In Malachi chapter 3, God tells his people they're robbing from him by not tithing. How is not tithing a form of robbery? This is super basic. So usually, a people would tithe to a landowner who's renting out the land. When the Israelites tithed, they gave a tenth of their crops, their animals, anything they earned to Yahweh. And what they were saying when they did this is, Yahweh is our landowner, not us. It belongs to him. Now, when Israel started holding back ties, they began committing a crime. If Yahweh was a human like us, Israel would have been taken to court for robbery. What does Yahweh do? He tells them to repent. Repent of this and begin this again. Now, here's a more helpful question. Why was the tithe important to begin with? Why was it important to begin with? Like I said, it's not a punishment, but why is it important? Here's the short answer from the whole Bible about why this is important. True worship fosters life and well-being, what the Bible calls shalom. False worship fosters death. True worship fosters life and well-being. Shalom, false worship fosters death. So the Bible envisions a world where worship and the rest of life, work, business, leisure, government, and justice, are all intricately tied together. They're connected through the creator who made the world and entrusted human beings, all of us, to be its stewards. So if humans worship and follow the creator, God promises that this will lead to what the Bible calls shalom, a situation of flourishing for humanity and for the creation. But false worship or the attempt to separate out worship of Yahweh from the rest of life, this is going to spell ruin. So tithing is a place where God connects for us 
worship and the rest of our lives. We bring our work before God and then we submit its profits to him to be used in his service. Everything that we do during the week, we come before God and worship and we say, it's yours. So in Israel, the tithe was used to support their worship centers and their ministers, as well as foreigners, orphans, and widows in the community. Now notice how everything is intricately tied together. True worship fosters shalom, life, especially the well-being of the vulnerable. But false worship would foster death. So you see this pattern play out throughout Scripture, especially in the Old Testament. When Israel forgets God, when they neglect true worship, who is the first to suffer from it? The weak. This is what many of the prophets of Israel are speaking about. Israel began worshiping other gods, Baal or whatever god it was. Then they became greedy and they neglected to care for their own especially the orphans and the widows. So this is what God is saying in the Old Testament. Worship me, bring your tithes before me, and you will bring about a shalom within the community, a well-being for the community. But the minute you begin going down a road of false worship, the minute you pull away, you are going to become a greedy people, and you're going to forget about the lowest among you. So why was the tithe important? Because true worship fosters life and well-being for all. It wasn't a punishment. That's not why God, God calls on his people to give to him. It was an invitation to life. But false worship, on the other hand, fosters death. So in Malachi, God tells Israel, if you want to return to me, here's a start. Begin by giving yourself through your tithes and offerings. Now, it's not as if this was all that mattered to God, as if God is now money hungry. But we all know this to be true. Our money follows our heart. And vice versa, our heart will follow our money. If Israel would begin their repentance by tithing, the rest of their lives would follow. This is what God was saying to them. Begin your repentance here. Begin giving to me again. And I know that the rest of your life will come after that. So for Israel, not tithing was a form of robbery, of holding back what belonged to God. And it held back the shalom that God had promised them, that he was willing to give to them a land of fruitfulness, of thriving, of peace on their borders. What about now? Do Christians rob God if they don't tithe? This is a funny question. The big debate with the New Testament among Christians is this. Do we still have to give 10%? It's funny because we're trying to find a way to give less. No one's asking, can I give more than 10%? Please, will you let me? Now, if you need a number to go by, then the answer is yes, 10%. And I want to show you this quickly, but then I want to show you the deeper point of the New Testament because it doesn't stop here. In Luke chapter 11, the gospel passage that I read a minute ago, Jesus is correcting the Pharisees. The Pharisees were strident about their financial giving. Jesus says, you tithe all these things. And he said, you should have done that. 
but you shouldn't have neglected the kind of justice toward others that goes along with it. Remember that at the heart of God is true worship that fosters shalom, life and well-being for everyone. But the Pharisees are living on a moral high ground, thinking they've done all they need to do by writing a tithe check. Jesus says, no, do that while also pursuing justice and the love of God. So again, the question, do we still have to give 10%? It's funny because we're trying to find a way to give less. But the way that the thinking goes in the New Testament is more like this. Has God given us more since the Old Testament or less? He sent Christ to be a sacrifice for sin in the New Testament. He brings forgiveness and healing into our lives when we come to him. He promises us life forever, a love that's more powerful than death, and a future that includes the redemption of all things. Do we still have to give 10%? The measure for giving in the New Testament is the sacrifice of Jesus. It's not a number, it's a person, it's him. In 2 Corinthians, Paul's writing to a, a more wealthy church. And I say a more wealthy church, wealth is relative. They happen to be more wealthy than other churches that Paul is working with. And Paul's asking them to support an offering for the poor in Jerusalem. Notice it again. Giving is related to worship and the care of the poor. These are held together. Shalom. So here's how Paul tries to persuade them to give. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. So Paul holds up Jesus as a model for our own lives. Christians are to follow Jesus in every way. This is beginning Christianity, right? This, these are the basics. Well, that means that we too are to learn how to become poor so that we might make others rich through our giving. Again, the connection to all of life is here. True worship, worship of Jesus Christ fosters shalom, life and well-being for everyone. Now there's a lot more that could be said on this topic. There are lots of other questions to explore. Does all my tithe have to be given to the church? Not necessarily, but I, I hope that you're at a church where you feel like you can trust that church to work with God in bringing shalom. If you're not a at a church where you can do that, then you need to think about that. What if I'm in debt? What about that situation? These are valid questions, and if you want to talk to them, uh, talk about them, reach out to me. I, I'd love to talk about them. But for now, I want to challenge all of us to take a step toward God, because this is what really matters. Again, the measure in the New Testament is not a number necessarily. It's the sacrifice of Jesus. It's God wanting to be in relationship with us through the sacrifice of Jesus. So what I want to challenge us to do to start with is take a step toward God in this area of your life. What was it going to look like for the Israelites to repent? Come back to me in this way. Your heart follows your money. Your money follows your heart. Start somewhere. Most of us are either too hard on ourselves or 
too easy on ourselves when it comes to our giving. I want you to ask yourself, which camp are you in? Some of you are too hard on yourselves in this. You, don't, you might not need to give as much as you're giving right now. But others of us are too easy on ourselves, and we need to give more. Now, if you're suffering financially, here's something I want to say to you. Don't do it alone. If you are suffering financially, don't do it alone. God does not make promises of wealth and provision for individuals alone. This is a glaring problem with the health and wealth gospel. It's an Americanized perversion that suggests everyone who follows God should expect financial wealth. That is not what God promises. Even in the Old Testament, it's not what God promises. In Malachi, even, what God promises is that his people as a whole will have enough to go around. If they're faithful as a nation, they will have enough to go around. So if you're suffering... Your role in the body is to share that suffering with our body. And the role of those who have is to share God's generosity with you. And both parties are to be enriched. Now, if you're not giving somewhere, start. When people say, I can't afford to give, what they usually mean is I can't afford to give without burdening myself without going, uh, without having to sacrifice somewhere else. And we live in a time when we're being introduced to new necessities for life every single day. There's so much more that is necessary today than it was 50 years ago, 20 years ago. Jesus wants his people to be free from the slavery to consumerism. And the great news is that whatever burdens come your way because of generosity, They present the opportunity for you to draw nearer to Jesus. He himself became poor so that you might become rich. Jesus offers to carry burdens with us. So if you encounter a burden because of your generosity, it's okay. Jesus is there with you in that. So tithing, as much as it looks like it's about money on the surface, what it's really about is what we as human beings are doing with our entire lives. To whom do we belong as human beings? Who or what do we worship? What do we long for in the world? In the Eucharist meal that we celebrate in our services, we offer up to God gifts of bread and wine. God gives them back to us as a memorial of what he gave us, right? And this meal of the Eucharist points to the world that we desire, that all humanity desires, where all people are richly fed by God and by his love. And so when we give, we join with God in working toward this world, toward the shalom that he has promised and that in Jesus Christ he has secured a world where all things will be made new. Now, in our cultural moment right now, where there is this outcry for justice, Christians have this opportunity to say, actually, this is what our God has promised. This is what our God is doing. And he's calling us to give of ourselves to see that world come into being. 
It's in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.